Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. Appreciate that last song. Um, one, it's one of the first songs I ever learned when I became a Christian. Um, and I've been in some pulpits, and it's just it's a God word, God focused song. Um, and I'm trying to find my notes that I need. Um, so, yeah, just appreciate that. Appreciate the Christ-focused direction. There's some pulpits that I've been up into, and they got written right back here behind the pulpit. Sir, we would see Jesus. And uh, so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to open up the Scriptures. We're going to look at Jesus in the face of the Scriptures. And so if you have your Bibles, open them up to First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians. And we'll begin... In chapter 1, verse 1. And I just want to read the text, just kind of get this set into our heart um, to see what God is saying here. Beginning in verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians, we read these words, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord is sounded forth from you, Not only from Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything, for they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and a true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God 
to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Let's open with a word of prayer and then we'll dive into this text. Lord Jesus, we do come before you as we have just sung, as we have just read, come before you to worship you because you are God. You are Savior and you are Lord. And so, Father, we just thank you for the morning. Thank you for the message of the gospel, the good news that Christ died for our sins and that he was buried, and that on the third day he rose again. May your gospel go forth this morning. Help us, Father, by the power of your Spirit to understand your word, to properly apply it as has been prayed. And we'll give you all the thanks, all the glory for that. In Jesus' name and all God's people said. All right, you'll notice the title of the text this morning is Avoiding the Pragmatic Problem. Pragmatism is a problem in our culture, and it'd be good to start with just a brief definition. So in general, let me tell you what pragmatism is. Pragmatism is a view on life that essentially says this, if it works, it's true. Something is true only in insofar as it does work. We would say the end justifies the means. Pragmatism, therefore, is very man-centered, as opposed to being God-centered. It concerns itself with what is pleasing to man without any regard for who God is or what he said. As a result, pragmatism would not argue for any absolute truth. It wouldn't argue for any objective truth, because if you got an absolute truth, if you have an objective truth, then you've got a truth giver. And for a pragmatist, that's a problem. They don't want a, uh, a truth giver. They don't want objective truth. They don't want absolute truth. The reason for this is because submission to God does not please men in their natural state. Men in their natural state do not want to please God or submit to his truth. That is the pragmatic problem. The problem with pragmatism essentially is this, that a lot of times what pleases me, what pleases you, what pleases men, does not please God, and vice versa. Steve Lawson has put it this way, if you please God, it doesn't matter whom you displease, and if you displease God, it does not matter whom you please. And so essentially, that's a brief definition of pragmatism, and that's its problem. It doesn't recognize the depravity of the heart. It does not recognize that a lot of times what I enjoy, what I like, is sinful and needs to be corrected. R.C. Sproul powerfully illustrates this in a book I recently read. It's called The Consequences of Ideas. And he says this, and I quote, my personal baptism into the public education crisis occurred in the 1960s when we sent our firstborn, our daughter, off to first grade. 
We enrolled her in a highly acclaimed progressive school in Boston suburb. When she came home from school each day, I asked her what she had done. She murmured the non-responsive answer that children typically give. After a few weeks, the school hosted a parents' night in which the principal would explain the school's philosophy of education. I attended eagerly. The principal reviewed a typical daily schedule. He was both winsome and articulate. If your children come home and tell you that they do jigsaw puzzles in class, don't be alarmed, he said. They are not just playing from 9 a.m. to 9.17. They do assemble puzzles, but these puzzles have been designed by pediatric neurosurgeons to develop the motor muscles of the fingers on the left hand. And then he went on through each segment of the school day, demonstrating that every moment was spent in purposeful activity. This tour de force overwhelmed the audience with its detailed and its erudite explanation of every element in the curriculum. When finished, he asked, are there any questions? Spontaneous laughter erupted. Only a fool would raise a question after the principal had so masterfully covered all the bases. I risked everyone's disdain by raising my hand, says Sproul. When the principal called on me, I said, Sir, I am profoundly impressed by your careful analysis. You have made it clear that you do everything for a purpose, but there are only so many minutes in a day, and therefore you must be selective in choosing what specific purpose you want to achieve. My question, sir, is this. Why? Why did you select the particular purposes you have chosen. What is the ultimate purpose you use to decide which particular purposes you select? In other words, what kind of a child are you trying to produce and why? Sproul writes, the principal's face turned ashen and then beat red. Without rancor, Without, with, with, and with humility, he said, I don't know. <laughs> Nobody's ever asked me that question. Sir, I said, I deeply appreciate your candor and your spirit, but frankly, your answer terrifies me. Sproul goes on to write, what I heard in this public forum was pragmatism with a vengeance. There were purposes without purpose, truths without truth. There was no norm to determine what is ultimately pragmatic. And as he spoke, I thought of Jesus's words from Matthew 16, verse 26. What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Jesus in that verse was being practical. He was saying that every practical goal of proximate success sooner or later will be measured against an ultimate norm for its ultimate practical result. End quote. Forty Bachum recently has put it like this. Gone 
are the classics and the idea that the humanities serve as the greatest foundation upon which the education of the next generation can be built. It has been replaced by the idea that education is practical, that it's pragmatic, that it's vocational in nature, that students are just cogs in a machine who are there to be prepared for jobs outside of school, not like our kids are learning up in camp right now, individuals made in the image of God who are there to be shaped and to be molded as thinkers. So that is the pragmatic problem. In a word, the pragmatic problem is unbelief. It is the lie that life can be successfully lived without any reference to God or to his word. Pragmatism, of course, produces pragmatists, which is just a fancy word for unbeliever. Unbelievers produce a pagan culture. Our God, this morning, is calling us to forsake that culture, and he wants to call a people to himself, and he knows exactly what he's producing. He's producing believers who will glorify, who will honor his son and him in turn. Chapter 3, Article 1 from the Westminster Confession in a section titled On God's Eternal Creed states these profound words. Listen to this. God, from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby, neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor is the liberty or the contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established." Article 6 of that same chapter says this. Now as God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so hath he, by the eternal and the most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. So unlike the pragmatist, the end does not justify the means. God justifies the end and he's got specific means by which he wants to bring us, me, you, everybody within the hearing of my voice to those ends. So this morning we want to look at those, and I'm going to mention four of them. Four means that God uses to create believers. The first one is providence. The second one will be people, you and me. The third one is prayer, and the final one that we'll look at this morning is preaching. So in your notes, you've got, I think, the practices that produce believers. I changed the word. Let's take that out. Let's make it the providence. That's a better word. The providence that produces believers. And for this, we need a little historic background. Is there any question that you and me are living in a pagan culture. Anybody disagree with that in here? 
I mean, it's crystal clear. Our, our culture is just pagan to the core. And so was Thessalonica. Therefore, the reference for this book today, for us, the Thessalonians found themselves in the very same world you and me find ourselves in today. The, Thessalo the Thessalonian culture was a pragmatic and a pagan culture. It was filled with idols, with idolatry. It was a Gentile world where there was no knowledge of God or of God's word or the Old Testament. Thessalonica was a large city of around 200,000 people. It was a trade center located on what was then called the Via Ignatia, which was a trade route that connected Rome with the rest of the Eastern world. So the pagan world would be flowing back and forth through Thessalonica. It was a commercial center. It had been founded in about 316 BC by Cassander, who at that time was the king of Macedonia. Cassander named the city of Thessalonica after his wife, who, get this, happened to be the half-sister of Alexander the Great. Paul arrived in Thessalonica around 49 AD while on his second missionary journey. And Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 26 give us the history of how he got there. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 16, and we'll begin in verse 6. Acts chapter 16, and we'll start in verse 6. We read there these words, verse 6. They passed through the Phrygian and the Galatian region after being forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to my Asia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And passing by my Asia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and pleading with him and saying, Come over to Macedonia, help us. And when he had seen the vision, we immediately sought to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. God providentially chooses his believers. Paul wanted to go up north into Asia. That was his plan. Our text says no. The Spirit of Jesus says no. I want you to go to Macedonia. My people are there. I want you to proclaim the gospel to them. They will hear it. They will respond. And so God is providentially orchestrating what he desires as far as creating believers. We see God's providence in that text. This, by the way, is something God does, right? He does it in my life. He does it in your life. He's not afraid to get into your kitchen and to orchestrate your circumstances to make it what he wants. I can think of, in my own personal life, lots of them, but indulge me just to share one. It was the spring of 1990. I was 23 years old. I lived in Pocatello, and I had just become a brand new Christian. Like a lot of brand new Christians, I had friends that weren't very healthy. So I had a buddy with me, and he wanted to go get a, get a case of beer. 
I knew from the scriptures to get drunk would not be God's will. But I had a friend that was influencing me, and he wanted to go drink some beers and get drunk. So I said, okay, let's go. We go to this store. We pick up a case of beer. We bring it home. In those days, they were in boxes, pretty big. I ripped open the box, and on top of the beer cans was a tract saying, this, was, this is your life. This is your life. I take this tract out, and it just so happened that I was the one that opened the thing of beer. Like Ruth, you know, that just so happened to wander into Boaz's field. I was the one that just so happened to open up this thing. I get this tract out, and this tract is like talking about you, you're living this pagan life, and then you die, and they got a picture of this guy six feet under, and all of a sudden he's being called by the Lord, and he's standing before the great white throne judgment. And I'm looking at this beer, and I'm looking at this tract. And then it says, that, that is your life, but then it goes on to share the gospel and says, this could be your life. And I just told my buddy, I said, I'm not drinking beer. I mean, I was convicted to the core. And I just said, I'm not drinking beer. And he looked at me and he's like, you know, what's wrong with you? I'm not, I'm not doing that. So that was just a example. I, I could stand here all day. I'm sure you could too. You could stand there all day and we could go back and forth and share examples where God has got his hand in your life, directing it to where it is he wants to go. But Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21 tell us, and I won't have you turn there, I'll just tell you, but essentially it tells us that Peter had this great experience on a mountaintop and that they were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and that they saw his majestic glory and they heard a voice coming down out of heaven saying, this Jesus, this is my son. I am well pleased with him. Listen to him. Give him honor, give him glory, essentially is what happened on the mountain. And Peter is describing that experience in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. And that's all well and good. And he says, that's, that's fine to express those stories like this. But here's something better. Go to the scriptures. Don't spend all your time talking about yourself and what God did providentially in your life. I mean, you can discuss those things here and there. But you know what? Spend the majority of your time in the text. Let God talk about himself. Let God tell about himself and what he has providentially done. And again, I mean, we could do this all day long. I mentioned uh, Ruth chapter 2, verse 3. Ruth just so happened to wander into Boaz's field. Or you could go to 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 15, where you've got Saul looking for lost donkeys. And the thought occurs to them and, and his partner, you know, hey, there's a seer in that town. Maybe we ought to go see the seer, find out where our donkeys are. And the text tells us that Samuel was the seer and that the day before God had revealed to Samuel that there'd be a man coming to you, anoint him to be king of Israel. You could read about that. 
Or we could go to David, the king after King, king Saul. And in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 7, you've got David fleeing from Saul up a mountain. And they're on top of the mountain. And Saul's got him. The army is climbing up on all sides. He's got him. And right when they're about to kill him, word comes. The Philistines are taking the city. You got to depart. And he just retracted. He left. Providentially, God is protecting his man, working in his life. Or you could go to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus. The crowd comes for the for them, him and his men. And Jesus presents himself and says, who are you looking for? And then in John's text, it says they all fell back on the ground because he said, I am. And they pick themselves up, dust themselves off. Jesus gets right back in their face. Who are you looking for? And protects his men providentially. So things, what I'm trying to say, don't just happen. There is a providence that is producing believers, that is working in our lives. We see it in Acts. If you go back to that text, verse 11, we can continue the story. It says, so after setting sail from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the following day, the Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were spending some days in this city. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were thinking that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia was listening. She was a seller of purple fabrics from the city of Thyatira and a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Now, when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave woman who had a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing great profit to her masters by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us and cried out repeatedly, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed, and he turned and he said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was suddenly gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men, Jews as they are, are causing our city trouble. And they are proclaiming customs that are not lawful for us to accept or to practice, since we are Romans. The crowd joined in an attack against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, 
commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into the stocks. So God providentially got these men to go to Macedonia, and now it's not going real well. By pragmatic standards, by pagan standards, it's not going real well. Perhaps Paul and Silas considered changing their practices. Maybe they'll alter their course and instead of proclaiming the gospel, try another tactic. No, Acts 16.25 tells us what they did. And now about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. So upon being released from the prison, one might think, Paul, Silas, learn your lesson. Consider some other practice. Instead of boldly proclaiming the gospel, opening the Bible, telling people God's word, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, tell us what they did. For you yourselves, it says in that text, know, brothers and sisters, that our reception among you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been treated abusively in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. And what was the result of that proclamation? Verse 13 and following basically tell us that some believed and then the Jews and the pagans drove them out of, the, of that town, Thessalonica. So again, by pragmatic standards, Paul and Silas appear to just be colossal losers failures. But does that discourage them from sticking to God's game plan of proclaiming the word of God? Acts 17, beginning in verse 10, tells us the answer to that. The brothers, it says there, immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And guess what they did? Verse 11 says, and now these people were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And therefore many of them believed, along with a significant number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And so Paul is, again, a colossal failure by all appearances and pragmatic standards and driven out of Berea into Athens. And Athens doesn't really want to listen to him either. And so he ends up in Corinth from where he writes this letter. So having suffered in Philippi, run out of Thessalonica, 
run out of Berea, rejection, 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 by all pragmatic appearances to have failed miserably, how's Paul going to respond in Corinth of all places? Corinth, the university capital of the world at that time, intellectual bastion of philosophy and human wisdom. How is he going to respond? Well, verse 4 of Acts chapter 18 says, And Paul was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Verse 5 says, But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, Paul tells us what his ministry was in Corinth, and he says this, And when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come as someone superior in speaking ability or wisdom. As I proclaim to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. I also was with you in weakness and fear and in great trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of mankind, but on the power of God. Paul says, I, I came into Corinth, I changed nothing. I changed nothing. I got up, I picked up my copy of the Word of God, I walked into the synagogue, and I started preaching Jesus as the Christ. I didn't change anything. There would have been pressure in Corinth to change. They wanted orators. They wanted people that could speak well. Orators are what Corinthians clamored for. People with superior speaking ability and had supposed wisdom. For example, one such popular speaker of the time was a man by the name of Favorinus. It was said of Favorinus that his eloquence was both sophos, that's wise, and potios, that's sweet, that's pleasant. He reportedly allured his audiences with the intonation and the inflection of his voice. He captivated them with the glances of his eyes and the cadence of his speech, end quote. Paul was not an orator. Paul said, I proclaimed. And he tells us what he proclaimed, God's word. Paul, you see, didn't see himself as an orator. He was a message boy. He was a herald. And a herald according to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, had one job, get the text right. Gustav Friedrich describes the herald in that book, and he says this, I quote, The good herald 
does not become involved in lengthy negotiations, but returns at once when he has delivered his message. In general, he is simply an executive instrument, being only the mouth of his master. He must not falsify the message entrusted to him by additions of his own. He must deliver it exactly as given to him. He must keep strictly to the words and to the orders of his master, end quote. Lawson says, while an orator is measured by the response he's able to elicit from his listeners, that wasn't the case with the Herald. An orator is results-driven, whereas a Herald, he is message-driven, end quote. He goes on to say, the implications of this are that a herald cannot be success-driven. He can't be a pragmatist. He can't be all the time looking to make people smile at him and please men. No, he is, says Lawson, obedience-driven. I'm going to obey. I will obey my master. I'm going to take the message he gave me. I will give it to you exactly the way that he gave it to me. And I'm not changing anything. And I'm going to do, do it in the power of the Spirit. So, what kind of a person are you trying to produce? To go back to Sproul's question. Well, if you're an orator, you're trying to recreate people in the image of yourself. If you're a pagan... You're trying to recreate people into the image of mankind. And you're trying to make them like you. Because you think you're so wise. Because you think you're so clever. That's what you're doing if you're an orator. But if you are a herald, you have an entirely more ambitious goal. You're seeking to make people like Jesus. And by the way... You're not doing it. Providence is doing it. And you're just the message boy. And you just are standing for your master and relaying his words. That is a far more ambitious goal. And that is what providentially God is seeking to do. So that's the providence. Turn back to Thessalonians and we'll look at the people. The people who produce believers, point two. God is creating a Christ-like people. He did it in Paul. He's done it in the Thessalonians. And as I speak, the Holy Spirit is doing it in you. He's doing it in me. Verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word during great affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. That word example is a fascinating word. It's literally two posts, an exact reproduction of us. We get the English word type from it. So what we see there is that the Thessalonians had become like blueprints for other people to follow. Where other people could look at them and say, I want to be like that. 
I want to imitate them. One author said, the imitators became the imitated. So how do you come the, overcome the pragmatic problem of unbelief? Well, like the Apostle Paul, like the Thessalonians, you just stay faithful to the God, God's game plan. Submit yourself to a steady diet of God's word and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, the pagan world is going to have to take notice when they see the transformation that takes place. That's what verse 8 says. Verse 8 says, For the word of the Lord is sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place. The news of your faith toward God has gone out, so that we have no need to say anything. Regarding this verse, John Stott makes this insightful observation. Listen to this. He says, we are a very media-conscious generation. We know the power of the mass media on the public mind. Consequently, we want to use the media in evangelism by print and by tape, by audio, by video cassette, by radio and television. We would like to saturate the world with the good news, right? And rightly so. In principle, nobody should quarrel with this ambition. We should harness to the service of the gospel every modern medium of communication which is available to us. But, he says, nevertheless, there is another way, which, if we must compare them, is still more effective. It requires no complicated electronic gadgetry. It is very simple. It is neither organized nor computerized. It is spontaneous. And it is not expensive. It costs precisely nothing. We might call it holy gossip. It is the excited transmission from mouth to mouth of the impact which the good news is making on people. Have you heard what has happened to so-and-so? Did you know that such and such a person has come to believe in God and has been completely transformed? Something extraordinary is going on in Thessalonica. A new society is coming into being. They have new values. They have new standards. They're characterized by faith, by love, and by hope. End quote. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3 tells us about the people in Thessalonica. It says that they were people who had work of faith, labor of love, and perseverance of hope. John Calvin called that verse a brief definition of true Christianity. First, faith, love, and hope. Notice this. They're outgoing. They're others-centered. They're considerate. It's not me, me, me. It's consideration of others. God is clear in the kind of people he's producing. He's producing a people who have faith outgoing towards the Lord Jesus Christ because you don't have any righteousness of your own. They have agape love, which is uh, love of the will that will extend love to somebody that's not really that lovable, to be honest with you. And they have hope in the soon coming return 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 5 and following. So these are outgoing things. They call you to get out of yourself, which is why I love the church, by the way, because I'm pretty much self-absorbed. But when I come to church, you can't get away with that. You have to get out of yourself a little bit. Your brothers and sisters make you do that. And that is why God has the church the way he has it, with all the different oddballs that are in it. So it's outgoing, right? Secondly, it is productive. They work. They labor. They persevere. Work is the Greek word ergon, which basically is what it is. It refers to deed, achievement, function. You're going to work. Nothing glamorous about that. You're living your day in, day out life, going to work. And by the way, if you did, if you did that, where you showed up for your boss and uh, didn't call out sick all the time and did your work hard, you would be better than 90% of the people in our world today. They would be begging to keep you there. But that's all it is. It's just work. And then he talks about labor, and this ramps it up a little bit. Labor is the Greek word kopos, which denotes an arduous, a wearying kind of toil that's done to the point of, I'm just dead. I'm exhausted. But they labored in love. MacArthur says this word, it refers to effort that strains all of one's energies to a maximum level. And they also persevered. Persevere is the Greek word hupomone. It means basically to remain under pressure. You're taking heat. You're taking pressure. You're not looking for the exit. You're not trying to flee. You're going to take it. You're going to bear up underneath it for the glory of God and remain and abide and stay. And you're not going to be fearful. You're not going to be afraid because you've got a mighty God. And he's not going to jerk you out of that situation, but he will empower you. He will strengthen you to go through it. And he's going to teach you a whole lot in the midst of that. That's what these people were like. They were people that had faith in Christ. They trusted him alone for salvation. That recognized, I got no righteousness of my own. God loved me. Gave himself for me. And I got no righteousness of my own. Furthermore, I'm not that lovable. He gave me agape love. Loved me when I was at my worst. Unconditionally. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to demonstrate that for other people. And I'm going to bear up. Because he is coming. And it might be today. And when he comes... I want to be found faithful, doing what I'm supposed to be doing. So we see the providence of God, how he produces believers. We see the people of God, how they produce believers. Thirdly, let's look at prayer that produces believers. It's all well and good to know that stuff, but the question is, how am I going to get there myself? How do I get there? And the answer is not rocket science. Verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians 1 simply says, Thank God 
Give thanks to him, be dependent on him for everything, and pray. Depend on God and pray. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, we are told, pray without ceasing. Walk around all day and shoot up little prayers to God. And don't ever forget that you're dependent on him. I think this is crucial for us. And here is where I kind of want to slow the bus down a little bit. And I, I want to emphasize this just a little bit because pragmatism is not just a problem that's out there. It is in here. It's in here. Okay? Pragmatism is a problem you and I have. We all, according to Charnock, could be practical atheists. We understand the word. We understand what a Christian looks like. But when it comes down to it, we think we can get there on our own. Practical atheism is what he calls it. Um, that is folly. I mean, just the other couple weeks ago, to illustrate this, we were up in Children's Church teaching up there, and uh, the text that was assigned to us was out of the book of Judges. Book of Judges, if you know anything about that, you've got 14 judges, you've got seven cycles, Israel's blessed, they're in the land, they get comfortable, they start to forget God, all of a sudden they're starting to rebel against God. Then you got God saying, uh-uh, there's discipline. He brings other nations in, kind of like our nation, other nations in that speak languages. You don't have a clue what they're saying. And it's judgment. And these people just start thrashing the, the, the people of God. And so they, of course, what do they do? They pray. They ask God for help. And God delivers them. But then the cycle repeats itself. And it does that seven times. And I'm talking to these kids about this. And I'm telling them, you know, look. They sh God should have put them in hot water and left them there because it keeps them clean. Just put them in hot water and quit getting them out of it and just leave them there. Bring a constant barrage of some pain so that these people just live a lifestyle of prayer and realize that they depend on God for everything. That would be my approach. But God, he blesses, gets them out of it, and it's just a repeated cycle. God had warned them. If you have your Bible, look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 7. God had warned them about that. And this is a text we should read often. Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning in verse 7. That text says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of streams and water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines, fig trees, and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without shortage, in which you will not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given to you. Verse 11 says, be careful, 
Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commandments, his ordinances, and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, and you build good houses, and you live in them, and when your herds and your flocks increase, and your silver and gold increase, and everything that you have increases, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, he who led you through the great and terrible wilderness, with its fiery serpents and its scorpions and its thirsty ground where there was no water. He who brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness it was he who fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, in order to humble you and in order to put you to the test, to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, listen to this, My power, the strength of my hand, made me this wealth. But you are to remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. He gives you the power to get out of bed and even show up to work, says Moses. He did it in order to confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And it shall come about, if you ever forget the Lord your God, and you follow these other gods, and you serve, and you worship them, I testify against you today that you will certainly perish. Like the nations that the Lord eliminates from you, so you shall perish, because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. I mean, understanding the pragmatic problem is one thing. Escaping it, that's another. And to do that, you're going to need to depend on God always, and you're going to need to pray. My favorite illustration of this in the New Testament would be the feeding of the 5,000. John chapter 6, you got Philip, Andrew, the guys behind him. There's a horde of people out there, 5,000 men, which would be with their wives and their kids. So you got maybe 20,000 people there. They're in another wilderness, kind of like Moses and the people were. And there's nothing to eat. And these people are hungry and they're thirsty. And the disciples come to Jesus and they basically said, send them home. We don't got no food for them. Send them out of here. Jesus looks right at them and says, They don't need to leave. You give them something to eat. And John 6 basically says, Jesus said that to them to test them. And it cracks me up because literally these guys get out their pencil, they get out their paper, and they start doing the math. Well, we got a couple fish here and some bread, and and maybe if we do this and that, we can, well, maybe we could feed 20,000 people pragmatism. It's instinctual. I mean, if you want to know if you're a pragmatist or not, look at your prayer life. Where do you go instinctually when you're in some heat? When you're not in some heat? When everything's going well? 
Where do you run? What do you do? So understanding the problem is one thing. Doing something about it, that's another. For that, we have to depend upon God. And if you want a good example prayer of that, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself, the text says there, and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow in love for one another. And for all people, just as also we do for you. So we've seen the providence that produces believers. We've seen the people who produce believers. We've seen prayer produces believers. Final point, preaching. The preaching that produces believers. And I will just make a quick observation. I will say when you go home and you read 1 Thessalonians verses 1 to 5, you're going to see probably, well, I know you're going to see seven references to God. If you want to count the word, that's eight. And so the first thing I'll say about preaching, it's about God. It's God-centered. Paul can't get five verses out of his mouth, and he's talked about God seven times. Pagans can't get a million words out of their mouth, and they hope never to talk about God or make any reference to him. Producing cogs in a machine. We see in that text, we see God the Father. You see God the Son. You see God the Word. You see God the Holy Spirit. It's all God-centered. That is the first observation I would, I would make. Paul talks about, in verse 1, them being in God the Father. You see that? That is such an unusual phrase. In God the Father. Jesus, Paul talked a lot about being in Christ. Talked a lot about being in Him, basically. But this phrase, in God the Father, is unusual. You only see it in 1 Thessalonians 1.1 and 2 Thessalonians 1.1. So you got to ask yourself, what is Paul doing there? And again, John Stott helps us. He says, I think he's doing it because he knew the insecurity felt by a young and persecuted church. He wanted to remind them that in the midst of their trials... Their security was in God, end quote. God has them. No matter what happens, what comes down the pike, God has them. And he wanted to remind them of that. Verse 4, he says, brothers and sisters, beloved by God, his choice of you. You didn't choose him. He chose you. Ephesians reminds us that that was before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Spurgeon says, and I love this, listen to this, Ah, sir, The Lord must have loved me before I was born, or else he would not have seen anything in me to love afterwards. (laughs) He must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. 
end quote. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 to 6, go on to say, In love he, that is God, predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he favored on us in the beloved. End quote. I love what Thomas Chalmers says. There's a sermon, and you ought to look it up on the internet. It's just called The Necessity of the Spirit to Give Effect to Your Preaching. It's a good reminder to guys like me that get up here and read the text, prepare, whatnot. You can do all that. You could preach a perfect sermon like Jesus did in John chapter 6, and they would basically walk away without the effect of the Spirit's preaching. And so Chalmers says this, and I'll close with this. He says, how little, how little must the presence of God be felt in that place where the high functions of the pulpit are degraded into a stipulated exchange of entertainment on the one side and of admiration on the other. And surely it were a sight to make angels weep when a weak and vaporing mortal surrounded by his fellow sinners and hastening to the grave and the judgment along with them finds it a dear object to his bosom to regale his hearers by the exhibition of himself than to do in plain earnest the work of his master and urge on the business of repentance and of faith by the impressive simplicities of the gospel. He goes on to say, let us suppose a man to take up his Bible and with the same powers of attention and understanding which enable him to comprehend the subject of any other book, there is much in this book also which he will be able to perceive and to talk of intelligently. Thus, for example, he may come by the mere exercise of his ordinary powers to understand that it is the Holy Spirit which taketh of the things of Christ and showeth them to the mind of man. But is not his understanding, he says, of this truth, as it is put down in the plain language of the New Testament, a very different thing from the Holy Spirit actually taking these things and showing them unto us, showing them unto him. And indeed it is. And the church we used to go to, they had these stained glass windows on either side. This old building built in the 1900s. And we would go in there to clean that church. And very often I would go into the sanctuary like this and I'd be in there working and I'd be vacuuming or doing whatever I'm doing. And I would look at those windows, they're massive. And I would be impressed. And I could pick out some detail. There was this image here and that image there. And it looked nice, it was, it was nice. But that next morning when I would get up and go into the church when the sun was streaming full beam 
through that stained glass window, that was another story. That was powerful. That was glorious. And that's you and me without the Spirit. Dark. But when the Spirit rises, you'll know it. And when you hear Him speak in His Word, you'll know it. And if you're His sheep, you'll be drawn to Him. And if you're not, then you'll flee from Him. I like what John Calvin says. I'm sorry, I I lied. I'm going to close with this. John Calvin says, and I quote, Whatever may be the issue of our preaching, it is, notwithstanding, well-pleasing to God if the gospel is preached and our service will be acceptable to him. And also that it does not detract in any degree from the dignity of the gospel, that it does not do good to all. For God is glorified even in this, that the gospel becomes an occasion of ruin to the wicked, end quote. So, understand you've got a God of providence. Understand he's operating, he's working, he's producing all things to, towards your good. He is that powerful. Become a person that creates other believers. And do that by prayer and preaching. That simple. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we do give you thanks for the morning. and Father, just thank you for your word that is so clear, that preaches itself, basically. Father, thank you for giving us the word and telling us what reality is. Thank you, Father, for faithful men of the past, like the Apostle Paul, like the Thessalonians, people that modeled it, that were examples of what a godly person is. And Father, we uh, desire that for ourselves. We desire that for this church. Father, we know that apart from the kindness of your spirit, that, Father, that we can't be those kind of people. And so, Father, we come before you in dependence. We just uh, thank you, Father, for even trials that force us to recognize our dependence upon you. And, Father, thank you for operating in our, our lives, in our midst, in a way that Um, just draws us consistently to yourself. We pray, Father, that you would continue to do that among us. We just pray that Jesus would be honored in this place, that he'd be glorified, that he would be given all the praise, all the glory, all the honor that he is due. And all God's people said, all right. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.